and must play the role and do the job. But here's something they notice, we notice. Our leaders are now removed from all this, removed from life as we live it each day. There is, as I write, broad resentment toward President Bush, and here is one reason, a fine and bitter sense that he has never had to stand in his stockinged feet at the airport holding the bin, being harassed. He has never had to live in the world he helped make, the one where grandma's hip replacement is setting off the beeper over here and the child is crying over there. And of course, as a former president, with the entourage and the private jets, he never will. Nor will Bill Clinton, nor the senators and leaders who fly by private jet. I bet a lot of Americans, most Americans, don't like it. I'm certain Gate 14 doesn't. All this is part of the mood of the moment. It is marked in part by a sense that our great institutions are faltering, that they've forgotten the mission, that the old America in which we were raised is receding, and something new and quite unknown is taking its place, that our leaders have gone astray. There is even a feeling, a faint sense sometimes, that we have been relegated to the role of walk-on in someone else's drama, that as citizens we are crucial and yet somehow extraneous. But we are Americans, and we mean to make it better. We long to put the past few years behind us, move on, write something good on the page we sense turning. So, this little book, written on the eve of a great election, without knowing how it will end, is intended to remind us of who we are, where we have been, where we are now, and where we are headed together. Part 1 This happened to my friend John, an average American kid from New Jersey who grew up in Montclair in the 1930s and 40s. I stress average. He kept a pigeon coop in the backyard, weeded lawns for 10 cents a bucket, went to the local public school. When World War II began, John joined the Navy, and in May 1944, at the age of 22, he was an ensign on the USS Thomas Jefferson, a former luxury liner that had been converted to an assault vessel. There, he was placed in charge of five of the landing craft for the invasion of Europe. Each would carry 25 soldiers from the TJ, as they called it, onto the shore of France. John's landing site was to be a 50-yard stretch of shoreline dubbed Dog Red Beach. It fell near the middle of Omaha Beach, which was pretty much the center of the assault. The TJ sailed to England's Portsmouth Harbor, which was jam-packed with ships, and on June 1st, the Army troops arrived coming up the gangway one by one. They were very quiet, John said when he told me his story in July 2008. Word came on June 4th. The invasion would begin that night. They geared up, set off, but were ordered back in a storm. The next morning, June 5th, the rain was still coming down, but the seas were calmer. So about 8 o'clock that night, they cast off to cross the channel. The skies were dark, rain lashed the deck, and the TJ rolled in the sea. At midnight, they dropped anchor nine miles off the coast of France. The men were summoned to a big breakfast, eggs and a ham. At 2 a.m., the crew began lowering the landing craft, which were called Higgins boats. 
The Higgins boats were 36 feet long, rectangular, flat-bottomed, a kind of floating boxcar with head-high walls. A crane would lower them over the side, and the soldiers would climb down big nets to get aboard. John said they had practiced, but as Eisenhower always said, in wartime, plans are only good until the moment you try to execute them. The Higgins boats pitched in the choppy water. The soldiers bloated down like mountaineers with rifles, flamethrowers, radio equipment, artillery parts, tarps, food and water, 70 pounds in all, had trouble getting from the nets to the boats. John said, I saw a poor soul slip from the net into the water. He sank like a stone. He just disappeared into the depths of the sea. There was nothing we could do. So they improvised, deciding to board the Higgins boats.